Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. In our last episode, we kicked off our season by looking at how Germany sees the world and how the world understands Germany in the context of the so-called Zeitenwender, the sea change or not in German foreign policy that was occasioned by Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine back in February 2022. And it's appropriate, therefore, that today we're going to be talking a lot about Ukraine in relation to Germany. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And as we set about doing this, it was always clear um, to us uh, how important and central Ukraine is, um, both for us uh, personally and professionally in our own lives, and for Germany in general as a whole right now. Uh, And we're not talking just about how Germany responds to Russia's invasion, but also how Germany sees Ukraine's future place in Europe in a free and democratic West uh, going forward. Why are the dynamics for Germany's relationship with Ukraine so critical for what kind of German country Germany ends up being in the future, Ben? Well, that's exactly what we're going to ask our guests today, Aaron, each of whom have a personal as well as a political connection to both Germany and uh, and to Ukraine and to the kind of changes that were unleashed by Russia's war. But also they have an invested stake in making sure those changes are appropriate for Germany going forward. And as you said, this is about much more um, than just understanding the dynamics of that invasion. It's about how we reset the world. It's about how we imagine the world in the future and the kind of future we're all actually fighting for. And understanding that while Ukrainians are doing the fighting and dying now, it's part of a wider struggle for that future to be both free and democratic. And so that's what I'm very interested to get into with our guest today. Aaron. And uh, we do have some fantastic guests today. Uh, four, in fact. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, today we have Olena Hulushka, uh, joining us from Kiev, uh, and she is a journalist there, uh, the co-founder of the International Center for Ukrainian Victory, uh, and we will come back to that theme, victory, <laughs> throughout this episode. Uh, she's also a board member of the Anti-Corruption Action Center. Uh, Olena, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And with us here in Berlin, we have Richard Telchuk. Uh, he is a security and foreign policy advisor Uh, to the uh, current opposition uh, CDU, Christian Democrats, uh, and specifically also to a member of the Bundestag, Knut Eberham. Uh, We also have Mattia Nellis, an advisor to German Green Bundestag member, Robin Wagner. We should uh, stress here that both of them are also speaking in their own personal capacities uh, with their expertise that they have also developed uh, over years in foreign and security policy. Uh, Both of you have worked on security and, Mattia, you also on Ukraine for a long time. We'll be hearing from two important German political camps today uh, in that regard. Uh, Finally, we have Jessica Berlin. Uh, You might know her as Berlin Bridge on Twitter. She's a security and geopolitics expert who is no stranger to conflict zones, including Ukraine, Afghanistan, and more. She's been to Ukraine several times already since February 2022. Welcome to all of you. Olena, let's come, let's come to you first. Um, as Aaron said, you helped found the Center for Ukrainian Victory. 
And you've said that while Ukrainians are grateful, and we've heard a lot about that word gratitude, uh, we were both at the NATO summit together in, in Vilnius where we heard that term used. Um, while Ukrainians are grateful for what the West has sent to Ukraine, it's not enough for Ukraine to win. So why is it so important that Ukraine wins? And is the West really all in on Ukrainian victory? Well, that's a very good question. That's basically a fundamental question from our perspective, because we all know that the goal defines the means. And if the goal is to have Ukrainian victory, that means that we wouldn't need to campaign to get modern battle tanks for uh, seven or eight months. We wouldn't need to campaign for fighter jets for 15 months of the full-scale war. We wouldn't need to still be on the stage of campaigning for the longer-range missiles, uh, which are blocked by uh, both the U.S., uh, Atacams and uh, German uh, Taurus. Uh, because if the goal of our international partners would be support Ukrainian victory, that would mean that the assistance shouldn't be incremental, that this should be, uh, as you've said, all in. Unfortunately, there is no international consensus to support Ukrainian victory. There is definitely consensus to help Ukraine survive and not fall, but this is not enough because each and every day we are losing the lives, precious lives, absolutely priceless lives uh, of, of our best asset, which is our people. It is, uh, th th this asset cannot be replenished and it can't be rebuilt, recovered, reconstructed. And every time I'm, you know, invited to the next conference for Ukrainian recovery, I, I just want to shout out asking that how can we be speaking about the recovery if we do not see the end game in this war? If we have no idea when and how it will end, because with such level of assistance, unfortunately, it is not yet clear when this war will end and how it will end. Um, that is why we, uh, in, in the first days of the big war, we established the center together with colleagues Hanna, Hopko, Daria, Kaliniuk, Olha, Ivazovska, Viktoria, Wojcicka, particularly with the goal to convince our partners that Ukrainian victory is in their own best national security interests, not only of Ukrainians. Because if you take a look at the Russian behavior over the last decades, I mean, it's absolutely clear that impunity uh, brings more evil and unpunished evil only growth. And Russians were never ever held to account for what they did in the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria, in, in um, Georgia, uh, uh, with Crimea and uh, Donetsk oblasts, with, uh, with Syria, all those unpunished acts of aggression, they led to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. If Russia is not brought to account and is defeated here in Ukraine, I'm afraid that the next phase of war would be much wider and would engage countries far beyond only Ukraine. That's absolutely right. And this understanding that actually Ukraine's security is also our security is something that has penetrated European discourse to a degree, 
but not all the way, not far enough to understand that this this fight really is our fight too, and that Ukraine's victory would also be our victory. And it's it's quite sad. Together with a colleague, Julian Stokler, we wrote a piece in May called Who's Afraid of Ukraine's Victory? And that was targeted at uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who had refused up to that point to say that Ukraine should win. And that's still not happened now. And we see that reflected in those arms deliveries. Um, it's interesting, you mentioned, uh, Elena, how long this would take. And Jessica, this is something that you've been um, writing about recently and thinking about recently. How long does it take for what? Well, this is coming down to one of the key questions when we're specifically looking at a German support for Ukraine. We hear on the one hand, since last February, since the full-scale invasion began, that Germany is on Ukraine's side, the condemnation of Russia, etc., But in action, we have not seen the tempo and the timelines match up to the rhetoric. And at the beginning, you know, the reasons for this were much debated and a lot of uh, credit and patience was given to the German temperament and history and all of these things. But one and a half years into this invasion, where on the one hand, Germany has picked up the pace and indeed delivered a great deal of military aid but not enough and not quickly enough. There's a strong sense within the governing coalition that Germany, let's call a spade a spade, that the SPD and the chancellery, Olaf Scholz's chancellery, have delayed consequentially as a strategy every new announcement of weapons capacities that Ukraine should receive. And so the defense that, oh, well, but Germany has done enough is not really the, the question that matters at this point, in my opinion. The question that matters is, why the delay? Why does it take so long? And some of the the excuses that were thrown around last year around uh, German history and uneasiness with weapons and even uh, accusations of personal cowardice on behalf of the chancellor and his aides, this, th- these kinds of excuses, um, in my mind, no longer hold water. Scholz's government claims to want a speedy victory for Ukraine, while they even haven't put it in those precise words. And what goes unsaid is uh, in a way more telling than what actually gets said. So Olena is absolutely right to raise the concern that it appears in terms of actions and what is left unsaid that not all of Ukraine's allies share the Ukrainian vision of victory and how to end this war. And even more damaging in the long term than the immediate catastrophic cost in lives uh, and in strategic losses on the battlefield in Ukraine. What this also leads to is a geopolitical situation where authoritarians around the world, and in particular in Beijing, are being shown that Germany in particular, and uh, some, some factors in other countries as well, including the United States, are not ready to do everything necessary to stop this war. And this war is happening virtually on our doorstep. Therefore, they can safely conclude that the West, the Western NATO alliance, will not be able to consequently act uh, and will not have the political will nor the logistical and financial readiness to consequently act in a similar conflict happening on another continent in future. Richard, we'll come to you next. Why this, why this reluctance? Why is victory the hardest word for old Olaf Scholz to say? And what's that doing to, to Germany as well as to Ukraine? Well, it's putting Germany into 
an awful position um, of having uh, the role of, of dragging things out where, where it's not necessary. Um, the chancellery has been showing the world how Germany is not ready for strategic thinking, for um, making the big decisions that are important for the future of our continent. You know, there's a development right now where the world is dividing into camps, into the one camp that is trying to uphold the international order and into a group of countries, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea and others, that are trying to trample human rights, trample international law and make their own rules and basically endanger our freedom, our, our economic future and everything that we, we, we value and everything that's important to us. So it should be a very simple and easy decision to, if you look at, at the world and all the countries that would want to join Western international organizations um, and, and our, our alliance to welcome them with open arms, you know, to grow our camp, well, setting a clear example and giving incentives to those countries that want to, uh, want to join us. There is, um, there's a big threat uh, that Russia and China will undermine um, uh, our determination to protect our system. Right. So, Matthias, coming to you, this is dangerous for Germans. This is dangerous for German national security. It doesn't really live up to the so-called special responsibility for European security that the current government has said Germany has in its new national security strategy. Again, what's, what's behind this? Well, I come from a uh, glass kind of half full perspective. Yeah, uh, back in September, October, I really looked into the German-Ukrainian assistance until that point. And I'm just in the middle of reviewing the German assistance to Ukraine until now. Yeah, so I would say that, yes, everything that has been said is right. And especially the tempo um, and we, um, of or the decision not to provide the, the Taurus missiles uh, is absolutely damning for German reputation. It undermines everything that uh, we, Germany is, is doing. It undermines its credibility. It undermines the fact that we've been uh, the second largest military provider after the US and so on and so on. So it's it's difficult uh, for me to, to really ex explain the hesitancy when it comes about individual weapon systems. And I also cannot understand why Scholz is refusing to say Ukraine must win and understand that this has to do with the hesitancy to even talk about interests. Uh, has, it has to do with our uh, lack of strategic discourse and that uh, uh, our discourse is fear-driven, that German discourse about the war has been largely about the fear of, of Russia, a lack of imagination, a lack of certain expertise, even seeing that Russia can be defended, uh, defeated and that Ukraine, with its resilience and resistance, can really push Russia out of uh, its boundaries, uh, out of its uh, territories. So that is, I think, the biggest problem, that we have a lack of uh, understanding and imagination in the German discourse about why it is so important that Ukraine wins. And I think we ought to change that. Absolutely. Is this connected to the lack of strategic thinking that Richard mentioned just a second ago? Is this actually a fear of strategy? And we see in that national security strategy, many, many critics, myself among them, have said it's not really a strategy. It doesn't prioritize, it doesn't set deadlines, it doesn't make hard choices, it doesn't lay out how these things are going to be funded. Now, some would say that's very convenient if you're afraid of strategy. I mean, on the lack of strategy, it was Mark Galliotti last year who said that um, Putin is betting on the West as the weak link and Germany in particular. But um, 
And Germany and the, the West, I, I would argue, have shown that they are committed over the long term. So it's not about 16 or 18 leopards or so on, but we have said that we will commit to supporting Ukraine's military over the next uh, years to come. So that's, that, I would say, is on the positive side. So it's, it's not an overall Ukraine strategy, how to achieve victory, but at least um, we have a an understanding that this conflict will and the war will go on over the next years, even if the active hostilities might end. But I think there is an understanding that the funding for support has to go, um, support for Ukraine has to go on. Then that's not a strategy, but that's a good point. But indeed, the support Germany's pledged for the long term is again not the kind of support that would help Ukraine to win, nor is it a commitment to the West actually winning this systemic competition or even the democratic world winning this competition as we might see it. Yes, two points to what Matthias said about strategy. So firstly, uh, to put this in context, Germany's lack of national security strategy and vision is not new and it's not unique to Ukraine. Without defining the goal that is being worked toward, it is impossible to define a strategy. And I experienced this when I was working with German aid operations in Afghanistan. There were vague statements made toward development and, and peace and all these kinds of nice words, but never a defined goal, without which you cannot define a strategy. And this fundamental weakness of German strategic thinking is just supplemented by the fact, again, across the political spectrum, this is not a single party issue, that we have a political culture where our politicians, the people actually serving in office, very frequently are coming from a purely local politics background, where people are working for their parties for years and years, but don't actually have tactical or hard experience in the areas for which they are then proposing policy. So there's a huge disconnect between people with technical knowledge and practical experience and people who have just worked their way up in a party and now find themselves suddenly as defense minister or foreign minister or working for people in those positions uh, who, who don't really actually have experience in what they're doing. But Aaron, this doesn't only sell out uh, Ukraine, this sells out ordinary Germans, doesn't it? That's right, Van. So when we're talking about political culture, one thing that uh, I personally find very striking uh, that we've seen in the last uh, year and a half has been the difference sometimes between the types of uh, strategies, arguments, or discourse that we have um, in German political culture uh, on the talk shows among parties and what the German public actually thinks. So almost three quarters of Germans were against sending any weapons to Ukraine at all in January 2022, one month before uh, this war began, eventually that turned uh, very, very sharply into a 64% support for sending battle tanks at one point. 74% uh, of Germans uh, say, said that they were willing to support Ukraine, uh, even if it meant paying higher uh, prices at home for things like groceries and energy. So the public seems to be on board and even regularly ahead of political leadership uh, which leads me to my question for um, our guests here. Why do you think we are seeing this kind of interesting repeated hesitation from political leadership, from political discourse, from elites to send Ukraine uh, what it me needs if the public has already, in fact, made the leap ahead of our leaders? So, Richard, let me throw it out to you first as a, a person from the opposition party. Why aren't you making more hay with this? Yeah. 
Yeah, we should be making hay, but um, we, we've been uh, governing uh, for quite a while also. And during that period of time, we had a chancellor in, in power who, as the first response to everything, said there's no military solution. And uh, while military solutions are, are definitely not the thing you want to go to first, um, if you take that off the table, you allow military actors um, like Putin, who think they can force their way through um, and, and get their will, to act. And, and we are in a position of, of weakness responding to that. Um, I, was, I was a bit shocked by the fact that President Biden at the big, very beginning of this conflict said NATO will never be involved in this. Um, there has not been a major conflict on this planet where major powers have not acted, at least in a clandestine fashion, in their interest and against the main aggressor. You know? So why, why is that not, not, not happening? Why are we deterred by Russia and Russia doesn't seem to be deterred by us? Well, I think they are deterred in a, in a nuclear sense. Um, I don't think there's a threat because, because Russia is firmly knows that there will be a massive response to anything in that area, but we need to be able to fight a conventional war under a nuclear umbrella against anyone. America, surprisingly, is, is willing to do it against China. Where is the problem with Russia? I mean, that's, it's, it's a question that violates many beliefs in, in the German political system. I get in trouble when I say that, but I think it's, it's something we have to think about. Well, exactly. I mean, the Titan vendor has, if it's about anything, should be about thinking beyond the boundaries of the inherited wisdom that didn't serve Germany or its allies well. A change in mindset, uh, if you will, as well as uh, actual strategy and guidelines. Uh, Mati, I'd like to come to you quickly, um, because... Uh, when we look at public opinion, specifically in Germany, some of the positions that the German public uh, are coming around to now uh, certainly, um, I think, have uh, somewhat surprised even uh, some of us very seasoned Germany watchers. Uh, but your party, um, the German Greens, has been advocating or for tougher rhetoric, at least, for uh, years. Uh, but when we get to this whole issue of public opinion versus leadership... Um, it hasn't always necessarily come straight out swinging to take advantage of that. Yeah, the arguments about public opinions are double-edged sword, yeah? So I cannot speak for on behalf of the Green Party, just as a Green analyst, I can tell you that if you look in the polls and sort them by supporters, you will see, as you said, that Green Party voters um, are the most ardently supporters of Ukraine and arming them, yeah? But... Uh, it's not a political winning issue. So as a as a party to go on and say we have to arm Ukraine with Taurus missiles, that's not an election winner. Yeah, Even advocating for stronger support of Ukraine as a political argument doesn't win you more votes beyond your uh, Stammvoters, your core electorate. Yeah, But even so, I want to come back one last point on the, on the Taurus. You see that the majority of Germans didn't know what Taurus were, uh, say, two months ago, but they're against providing them. So you can you can see a lot, all sorts of things in the poll, and I would say on the meta level, the support for Ukraine remains in the German population remains high, despite the fact that Scholz is not saying why it is in our interest to support Ukraine more, why Ukrainian victory is in our interest. So despite of that, the support remains high, but you see first fishes. So I would be. Um, cautiously optimistic but still cautious about the public support going 
over the medium term in the absence of arguments about interest and why is it so important that Ukraine wins? What I find interesting, though, about public support is that um, the, you know, the German public is against providing something and then it, is, it often switches to being for it. Uh, and we've seen this cycle a few different times, uh, first of all, for weapons at all, and then we come to heavy weapons and tanks. And now it seems that we are in a similar debate uh, on about Taurus. Is there any way to break this cycle or to at least uh, shorten the amount of time we seem to go uh, over and over um, through it again? I wish I actually had the answer to that because that's the dilemma which we are facing uh, on each and every step. And you know that this really sounds as a kind of a bitter joke that yes, we have one box ticked, so uh, let's try to push the next red line because each and every new type of weapons is a red line. It's a no-go. You will definitely not get it. And then we are also hearing a, a lot of, you know, reports of some uh, anonymous uh, intelligence officers who comment that, well, Ukraine doesn't really need that. I mean, Ukraine can move forward without tanks, without jets. I mean, not a single, you know, uh, uh, combat ground combat mission uh, would be be done by NATO without air superiority. But all of a sudden, Ukraine doesn't need modern fighter jets because that's an absolutely unique uh, case. Uh, so unfortunately, yeah, that's the problem which we are seeing. And we are seeing it right now, by the way, not only with the uh, um, uh, longer range missiles, but also with the NATO membership, uh, because our colleagues from the New Europe Center conducted the public opinion poll uh, in five countries, including Germany and the US. And the stance of the society was much more progressive in terms of those who have the uh, uh, who have the, their stance on whether Ukraine should be accepted to NATO or not, more than 50% were in favor in European countries and more than 70% were in favor in the US. So what is our recipe is definitely working with media because journalists, and from my perspective, they played a very important role in terms of uh, reminding the politicians that, hey, Ukraine does need that on a daily basis. Uh, working with, uh, with the agents of change uh, in the government, in, in the parliament, who can be vocal advocates and also keep that very high um, on the public agenda. We also work with the civil society groups who organize regular rallies, who do the campaigns to make sure that, uh, again, this issue is raised and it is not forgotten, and also working with other countries. Because if you um, recall uh, what was the key to the uh, Olaf Scholz decision on Panzerhovitzers, this was Mark Rutte's decision to uh, move ahead with that. Uh, so maybe sometimes it, it is worth working with um, with the countries who are more open to move forward uh, and uh, through that uh, unlock the decisions of uh, more conservative governments, let me put it that way. And actually, I'd like to, uh, now that you bring that point, I'd like to reference some polling here about how uh, Ukraine perceives uh, some of its partners and allies in the West uh, in 
uh, February, we saw some uh, fresh polling from actually the Munich Security Conference about how Ukrainians see different countries and whether most Ukrainians consider those countries to be allies uh, of Ukraine and good supporters of Ukraine. Uh, we did see that Germany scored a net positive among Ukrainians, uh, plus 47% uh, have a favorable of Ukrainians have a favorable opinion of Germany and its support. Uh, and that uh, sounds like a good number until we realize that uh, we have uh, for the US and UK and some of the Central and East European countries, we have net positives more of above 75%. Is that consistent with some of the things that you have uh, observed uh, or your experience in Ukraine? Yes, actually, I would say that this is the overall perception uh, in the Ukrainian society that uh, some countries are um, more open and more um, willing to move forward and they push other countries and they initiate the establishment of the coalitions because that's the way how uh, more reluctant governments are open to move forward. And by the way, the tank coalition experience helped us a lot with the fighter jets coalition experience. And now we have um, in the plans for the next year to have a NATO coalition, um, NATO uh, uh, invitation coalition uh, advocacy campaign. We would want very much uh, countries like Germany to be more proactive and uh, to be more willing and more all in. Uh, but since it's not there, you have to come up with some creative solutions uh, how to make them move forward. Indeed, again, this shows the importance of elite discourse and of expert contributions to this debate in order to help keep public opinion aware, actually, of what are the, the stakes, what are the options available, what is Taurus, for example, what it can do and why it would matter and why it's important for Germany to send that for Germany's own standing and reputation as well as for the battlefield cause for Ukraine. We often hear this, this complaint that as soon as Ukraine gets one weapon system, they immediately ask for another. To, to me, this totally misses understands the nature of what we're facing here. I mean, this is a war that Ukraine is trying to win. Of course, you ask for the next thing. You get, you find a way to get what you need to win. Jessica, I want to come to you on this question of, yes, we should be pushing allies to push Germany. So which allies are we pushing and how and why? And how does that actually affect German decision-making, German public opinion? Is it only positive or is there some pushback on that too? It's a really good question and one that's also right now uh, experiencing a bit of flux. Last year, the answer would have been very clear. Washington. There was a very strong sentiment last year that Berlin doesn't move unless Washington pushes. However, this year in particular around the Taurus and Attackums delivery debate, uh, we've almost seen a role reversal where, for whatever reason, the Biden administration has put on the brakes and the Scholz administration has been very happy to hide behind it. And so now uh, the lever has shifted from, uh, from the U.S. to Europe uh, because Germany, as an anchor, major EU partner, really doesn't like to be seen as going against European uh, consensus. And so now this year there's been a renewed effort between of course, uh, the, the Baltics and Eastern Central Europe, um, as well as the UK, um, and even increasingly France uh, in Western Europe, to try to push Germany and bring Germany 
into a European coalition because the logic goes that the U.S. would then find itself in a very difficult situation to be blocking uh, European decisions uh, and cohesion when, for years, uh, Washington has been saying that Europe needs to do more for defense and for European security. On the question of German domestic politics and public opinion, because this, of course, is a huge driver for everything the Schultz administration does, one of the big lacking uh, missing pieces here to keep um, German public opinion and awareness up has been communication and leadership from the chancellery. In Germany, for obvious reasons, uh, since World War II, we have a political culture that doesn't like really charismatic leaders uh, giving uh, rousing speeches to the masses about what we need to do as a nation. But now, you know, we're in the 21st century facing a totally different crisis moment, and we would need a chancellor and a Bundespräsident who speak to the people, explain to them what is at stake at this moment in history, and how... This moment, this war, indeed, is the moment where modern German democratic leadership and economic and indeed military production might are called for. And in a way, this, this war and Germany to step up and to help Ukraine, this would be a Zeitenwende going far beyond just our defense spending, but really to the soul of the nation and who we are, as the post-post-war generation, where now Germans today don't carry guilt for World War II, but we could say never again means not only we're very sorry for World War II, never again means we see ourselves as the number one and uh, guarantor of peace, democracy in Europe, and we will never again allow fascism and genocide to touch European soil. That's right. And this, it raises an interesting point because I think that the uses of history in the German debate are central to understanding which positions different actors are actually taking. It was Thomas Bagger, who's now a state secretary at the Federal Foreign Office, recently uh, arrived, who, uh, speaking at a conference in Tallinn, Jessica, you and I were both at in, uh, in May when he quoted Ivan Krastev saying that the German nightmare is war, the Central East European nightmare is occupation. And I put it to him afterwards that if the German nightmare is war, then Germans have the wrong nightmare. The nightmare should be expansionary fascist dictatorship and understanding that sometimes you need war to stop that dictatorship. And so this is the, the kind of discussion I think that needs to be had a little bit more in Germany. Uh, Richard, what would you say about that? Is that a discussion the CDU and CSU is willing to have? Also, we ask this because we recognize that your party is currently leading in the polls <laughs> by a lot. Uh, so it is an important question within your own uh, political culture in Germany. Well, the CDU-CSU has been, from the beginning of this war, pushing very hard, pushing the chancellery very hard to move in the right direction. And we've had some successes. We, we got the, the Zeitenwende speech from the chancellor and his promises, which now, unfortunately, he is breaking on a, on a scale that is, is really, it's disappointing and it's painful. He promised to at least fill the biggest gaps in, in, in military procurement um, uh, with the $100 billion package. And he's not doing it now because uh, they need money for operations and other, other purposes. We're not taking the important steps to move Germany into a position to be what was called an anchor force in the center of Europe. And that's a big problem because... Um, uh, we're sending the wrong signals to, to Moscow and to, to our allies in Eastern Europe. 
Absolutely. And it's interesting to hear in that regard that um, Poland is doing exactly exactly that. Poland is rearming itself. It's building uh, its armed forces in a massive way. But that's mainly attracted criticism rather than praise from Germany. So there's some questions to be answered there. Mattia, what would you have to say about these questions of history and how they're used in the debate? History, unfortunately, or fortunately, didn't play in a big enough role. Um, uh, unfortunately, because Germany uh, projected, as Jessica indicated, uh, its its guilt um, towards Russia before the full-scale invasion. So Russia was manipulating the German feeling of guilt very effectively. And uh, Ukraine itself wasn't seen as a subject, but more of an object. So history in that regard played a, unfortunately, very outsized role, as, as in that we didn't perceive Ukraine as, as we should have. Yeah? As it was a terror incognita, and Timothy Snyder so, uh, put it so well. It has to do with our own colonial uh, past of uh, Germany colonializing Ukraine and not taking Ukraine as a former colonial subject as serious as we should have. So Ukraine um, ought to have a bigger place in our uh, mental map. And as, uh, as others have said, we didn't have a rousing blood and sweat speech like Macron had. We didn't have, have this wake-up moment. So the political mood is still, okay, let's do a bit, little bit of more of the same. We came from 5,000 helmets to half a battalion of leopards, not understanding that in such a war, 18 or so leopards are nothing. Yes, it's, a, it's nothing. You need 200 of them to make a very big difference. So we're still in a more, more of the same incremental logic. And I think we, uh, re- reality hasn't caught up to our imagination imagination just yet yeah absolutely Mattia. and this it points to not only the the particular imbalanced use of history that not not challenging of those historical lenses uh, but also the lack of ability to face the future and what needs to be done to actually safeguard the future at the scale that needs to be done there but what you mentioned about um, colonialism and overlooking Ukraine a lot of people have also said that Germany still tends to overlook Central and Eastern Europe more widely still tends to see Central and Eastern Europe through the prism of Russia and of course Germany has a particular relation to many countries in Central Eastern Europe Um, also through the European Union and through its common NATO membership and how those transitions were handled, which will have, I think, interesting lessons to learn and also some lessons to unlearn as we go forward into including Ukraine in in, uh, NATO and the EU. Don't you think so, Aaron? That's right, Ben. And we have been talking so far uh, today about Ukrainian victory, specifically how uh, Germany sees Ukrainian victory and, uh, on the other hand, what uh, Ukraine needs to win. Uh, and the differences uh, that we see between those two things. Uh, But we are also discussing um, today what happens after this war, uh, where Ukraine belongs in the European and wider Western democratic family. Uh, Now, from the German and EU side, uh, European Council President Charles Michel uh, said recently, uh, your European future is no longer a question of if, it is a question of when. And he uh, meant He addressed that to Ukraine in particular. Uh, We also remember uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, saying Ukraine is a part of the European family and we want them in. Uh, Over 60% of Germans uh, in recent polling say Ukraine should be welcomed into the EU uh, in the next years. So we're seeing a lot of support now for bringing Ukraine in. But it hasn't always been this way, though, has it been? 
No, that's right. Anyone who's been looking at um, EU-Ukraine relations for the last 25 years knows this story all too well of the hesitant embrace that EU, the EU countries and the EU institutions gave to Ukraine, which was as much about keeping Ukraine at arm's length as actually bringing them closer in. And there was this real hesitance. Now, certainly, I've, I've been following that for a long time. And I even in the early stages of this conflict, um, this stage of the conflict, started to see something different happening. It was on the 25th of February, standing on the roof of a, a hotel in Kiev, when the BBC's correspondent, uh, Nick Robinson, said, look around at this dynamic, vibrant European city. And that was already a change in language than, than I'd heard uh, compared to how Ukraine had been described before, often on mainstream Western European media. That change in relation has, I think, been borne out to a certain extent by the amount of support that Ukraine has got from populations around uh, Europe, around the democratic world. But it still seems to be not quite enough to push fast enough to push far enough. Um, Olena, how's, how do Ukrainians feel about that at the moment? And how do they see their future prospects in the EU in particular, but also in NATO? I'm personally a very big Euro optimist, and I'm absolutely sure that Ukraine will uh, be the part of the European Union. But what really worries me is actually the timing, because um, we in Ukraine do not have the luxury to stay in the gray zone for the next, let's say, 10, 15 years while we will be negotiating with the European Union agriculture subsidies. If you take a look, you know how our neighboring countries are treating our agriculture exports. Uh, I mean, you know, the way that they are banning and uh, that, that there are some artificial uh, blockades. I mean, that is not ok, but that also shows that there are a lot of underlying issues, uh, mostly economic, mostly business-related issues, which we would need to fix. And uh, even in terms of the energy, let's say, you know, Ukraine is integrating into uh, this uh, um, European electricity market during the wartime which is obviously a huge step forward, but still a lot needs to be done with regards to that. And uh, unfortunately, we won't have time to introduce something similar, you know, to the Finnish scenario when they allegedly stayed neutral with regards to NATO, but got this uh, security foundations uh, in the course of their European integration. That is why I think that for Ukraine, it is um, fundamental to have the NATO membership as soon as possible, because that would be, you know, the basis. That would be the fundament for our security to get our refugees home from abroad to make sure that they can be planning their lives uh, in the long-term perspective in Ukraine because they, they shouldn't be thinking whether their teenage kids would be fighting against Russians in the next five, seven, ten years when Russians rearm and come back, you know, to exterminate us because they never, ever, you know, give up on this idea if they do not go through real denazification and there is no appetite among the international partners for this denazification to happen, meaning that there should be other type of safeguards 
put in place to make sure that they don't attack Ukraine. But this is also about the investors, because again, when I'm, you know, visiting this recovery conferences, hearing that hundreds of billions of dollars will pour from the international investors into Ukrainian economy, I have the first question, you know, that investors want security guarantees. They won't open their factory or a plant in Ukraine if it may be destroyed in the next, uh, let's say, three, five years and their um, staff and workers will be killed by the Russian missile because that's how Russia operates. So, And and here it's very important not to allow to be tricked with the security guarantees, you know, assurances, Budapest Memorandum 2.0 or 3.0 version, yeah, whatever. I mean, we are already, we have a very bitter experience and we know what is the real security guarantee and what is not. So, I think that if if our international partners in Europe should be very much interested in having stable, democratic, resilient uh, Ukraine, because we are in the same continent, for that, we need to have NATO membership as soon as possible and EU integration to fix outstanding rule of law issues, to get properly done anti-monopoly reform, to get de-oligarchization, yes, and all these reforms issues plus economic issues to be solved. That is the only formula which can work for Ukraine's successful future. I remember actually uh, Ivana Klimpos, the chair of Ukraine's parliamentary committee um, on integration in the EU, uh, saying at a Berlin event called Café Kiev earlier this year, if Ukraine is not accepted into NATO after this war, there will be another war. Chancellor Schultz has said previously that this war will end with a free Ukraine ascending to the EU as a rightful member state. Uh, but the government has been uh, a little bit more cagey, I would say, when it comes to NATO membership uh, for Ukraine specifically. Um, what do you say to uh, Germany's willingness, Richard, we'll start with you, uh, to go to bat for Ukraine when it comes to membership in both the EU and NATO, but particularly uh, for NATO? Yes, I don't think um, EU membership is put much in doubt um, in Germany. You will have uh, probably people in the chancellery demanding that it will take a long time to do that, to achieve all the all the necessary preconditions, which I don't agree with either. I think we need to, to take immediate steps um, uh, as soon as, as the conflict has ended one way or the other to integrate the, the Ukrainian economy into the European economy in order to allow for reconstruction. But my biggest fear is put yourself in, into Putin's shoes. If you want to prevent that from happening, what do you do? you keep the missiles coming. Even if your soldiers are thrown out by force, you don't end the conflict. And then we have this very dangerous transition phase in which we might have to take the decision to take Ukraine into NATO while they're still under fire. Because that fire might never end, at least until, whatever, Putin is thrown out or something, you know. And then we cannot sit by anymore and, and watch cruise missiles destroy Ukrainian cities and infrastructure, then we might have to put an F-35 on patrol over Kiev and, you know, use the sensors they're built to shoot down cruise missiles. And that will be the most difficult one to take because everything 
you know, the rules are against that. Yeah, this is interesting. The question of the rules, but also how it relates to strategy. I mean, we followed the rules, but everybody died is not a strategy I think we could um, we could get behind here, nor should we be trying to. But again, it seems to be the timidity as a false economy in the short term. This timidity not to do too much, not to go too far or too fast, which will actually end up forcing us to go further in the longer run under circumstances that are less favorable to us. So I think this has relates to the to exactly the point on strategy that was made before. Uh, so Jessica first. Yes, this raises an important point. NATO could have intervened much earlier in this conflict with air support, with air defense for Ukraine in a way that would have deterred Russia and could have made this conflict much shorter. That didn't happen. And I won't go into the debates and the reasoning behind it, but let's just consider this from the international legal considerations um, and uh, from the UN. All right, think of the first Gulf War. When Kuwait was attacked, they asked for help from the international community. And by law, any member of the United Nations, any member state, was able uh, and allowed to give Kuwait military support. Now, unfortunately, the Middle Eastern conflict that everyone thinks of when they worry about getting involved in Ukraine is the second Iraq war. But it's very important to remember that when Kuwait was attacked by Iraq and the United States came to their defense, that was welcome and legal. And the fact that we didn't do this uh, for Ukraine when Ukraine cried out for help, not only to NATO, but to the UN and the world, and no one came to their aid, we by leaving them to fight alone, prolonged the conflict. Uh, Mattia, so is there consensus on uh, EU enlargement to Ukraine and going as fast as we can? There is political consensus, I would even argue, within all of the EU that Ukraine will become a member. The question is especially or particularly about the pace. And if you listen to even the most ardent supporters of Ukraine's EU integration, the Greens and others, they will say no rebate, no discount. Yeah? So that means, unfortunately, Olena put the finger in the wound. There will mean very intensive debates about criteria and all these technical aspects. Because uh, join, So Olena point, put this very right. Uh, joining the European Union in the best case scenario will be five years. Best case scenario or years. In the worst case, decades. So, um, so this is why I completely agree that there is political consensus. But getting there, I think Germany is one of those. And not just Germany, others, uh, even in Scandinavia, saying they have to be criteria. And I think the, the criteria have to be fulfilled. That means years of difficult negotiations. On NATO, I think there's zero consensus among the alliance, unfortunately, um, and especially in Western Europe. And that has to do with the um, fear-driven discourses that we have because the, the people are afraid of direct confrontation with Russia. And if it's a killer of an argument to say, if Ukraine joins NATO, we are party to the war. That basically ends every debate. And yes, um, I agree that uh, there will not be a recovery without proper NATO membership of Ukraine. Yes. And it's even for us cheaper, this israel porcupine model that some dream of. Like this means arming Ukraine to the teeth without NATO membership. That's a kind of an illusion that is I think it's not palpable, uh, it's not doable. So I think, unfortunately, the Germans are afraid to come to Ukraine's aid in, the, in, in, in a future war. So we have to move beyond that. And my argument always to Ukrainians is like, get ready. There are some technical requirements for NATO, but it's really about a lack of political will. Get ready. There will be a political window 
when Russia is defeated and maybe Russia uh, regime collapses, there will be a short window when you can join. But as, as of now, it's difficult to predict when and where this will happen. But uh, one can only say Ukraine would be in addition to NATO uh, if it joins. But right now, majority of Germans does not see it this way. And even joining, uh, letting Ukraine join now after a war, the fear is that Russia will attack again and then German boots would have to be on the ground. So this is unfortunately the reality that there is a fear of direct confrontation which prevents a strong uh, support for Ukraine joining the alliance. And this we have to overcome. Absolutely. And as a recent report from DGRP argued, this is a false uh, understanding. It misunderstands deterrence and how deterrence works. And it also relies on inferior options. As you mentioned, this porcupine strategy, as it's known, or even the enhanced version, the Israel strategy, which never actually allows Ukraine to have nuclear weapons, which, of course, is what really keeps Israel ultimately safe. We spoke previously or someone was talking previously around attrition and, and the lack of understanding of the volumes needed. I mean, we're, we're talking visions out of a World War II movie or documentary, complete scorched earth, destroyed villages, uh, if, if you're wondering why they need so much stuff. When thinking about Germany's uh, support for Ukraine, I said I'm uh, half kind of full optimist, yeah, but uh, we have to move beyond the incremental approach. And this is not about strategy, it's about specifics. Yeah, we've been ramping up or are ramping up ammunition production within the European Union or within European defense sector. But Germany has to think about, uh, okay, we, we don't have enough tanks to give. The army is telling the Bundeskanzler there's zero tanks to give. So procure more, not not procure 20, but procure 200 together with uh, a, a set of countries to drive down the investment costs for Ukraine. So we have to move away from this incremental step-by-step -step help because the stocks are low of the industry, the stocks are low of the German army. So procure big, think big. And this is not just with artillery, and air defense system, but also with tanks. And this is the only way to get Ukraine sufficient numbers down the road is by thinking and joining bigger coalitions for joint procurement, especially for tanks and armored vehicles. But incremental steps are basically finished. We don't have much more to give from the existing stock. So we need to move fast towards joint procurements. Right. And we, we need that for ourselves, for our future, as well as for Ukraine and Ukraine's uh, ongoing conflict, but also future defense. Germany has actually joined a coalition with the Czech Republic, with Italy, with Lithuania and others, purchasing hundreds of tanks. But Germany has not yet act chosen to activate its full allocation within that coalition. So it'll be interesting to see as another litmus test of the Titan vendor as we go on, whether that comes to pass. Well, there is a simple reason why this is not happening. It's money. Nothing but money. The government, that's the biggest failure of the current Ampel Coalition in, in Berlin. Traffic light for those listening. Traffic light coalition. Um, they have decided not to allocate the necessary funding to fully equip the Bundeswehr, as Scholz promised. And they haven't started industrial production at a scale that we are capable of. You know, you have to wonder that Rheinmetall goes to Hungary to build a tank factory and eventually mm -hmm. uh, to Ukraine itself. Why aren't we doing that in Germany? Why aren't we allowing industry to do what they can do? Well, there's other financial priorities still. It's unbelievable. We, our, our very existence is threatened by this and we're thinking, no, there's... We have to to do social uh, benefits for our population before the next election. 
Right. And this, this brings me to, to Elena, uh, who's experiencing up close and personal exactly this existential threat that is there. Uh, well, I would say that the lack of money shouldn't be used as an excuse of not supporting Ukraine in our existential fight. Because if Western countries do not want to assist us with their, with their taxpayers' money, which is fine from our perspective, go ahead and confiscate Russian funds. We have $350 billion dollars from the Russian Central Bank that are frozen uh, in the Western countries, most of them in Europe, because Russia right now knows that they can count on getting this money after the war ends, as they hope with some kind of ceasefire, whatever. This is absolutely not right. The criminal who is committing genocide should be punished and brought to account. And this confiscation of money should be one of the uh, pillars of the accountability. Frozen assets in a frozen conflict or Ukraine victorious and included within our European and transatlantic institutions. The choice is there. The strategic will to take it is apparently not yet there, at least in Germany, but also among some, some partners. And it strikes me that a lot of the themes coming through our conversation today, be it about how support is treated. And remember, it's not aid. It's not charity. This is an investment in our future security and in the kind of future world we want to, to live in, are still not understood in many of the common Discourses. We're having the same conversation now that we were also having last year about various uh, issues here. And I think that reflects something else, this strategic paucity and strategic poverty that we see in thinking in too many Western European countries in particular, reflects, I think, a nervousness, a lack of optimism about the future. And uh, Elena, you mentioned um, that Ukrainians are Euro-optimists. I think they might be the most Euro-optimist, actually, because they're still optimistic about Europe's future. Having seen the horrors of war so early, up close. Ukrainians perhaps understand than any of us at the moment exactly why it's worth fighting for those uh, things that Ukraine is fighting for, for the things that European Union and NATO are supposed to embody and to, to protect. So what this, this notion that the NATO can help you survive, the EU can help you thrive, is very much alive in, in Ukraine. We need to re-engineer it in our own countries in order to actually have that vision, which would allow us to make those investments up front in our security that will underpin our future prosperity and future good life. And bringing those arguments together is something I don't think either politicians or experts have yet to do. Even if we are talking about money, it's a very uh, low investment for what we actually could be getting, which is renewed safety. That's all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Uh, thank you very much to our guests, Elena Hulushka, uh, Richard Telchuk, uh, Mattia Nellis, and Jessica Berlin. Uh, we'll include information about how to find them in our show notes. Uh, thank you to you, our listeners. We hope you'll join us on our next episode where we discuss the future of German defense. In the meantime, if you liked us, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions or comments, Please find us on Twitter at BC Talis, at Aaron G. Burnett, and DJAP EV. Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin, and tschüss.